Hello and welcome to all the gas pastors out there. I am your host, Dr. Bonnie Gatson, with another episode of the NAVAS podcast, where we take a deep dive into topics related to veterinary anesthesia and pain management. I'm really excited about this episode because I get a chance to get on my soapbox for a while to discuss an incredibly important but oftentimes overlooked aspect of practicing anesthesia which is creating a robust safety culture wherever it is that you practice. Now, on its face, this issue might not seem incredibly exciting or intriguing. However, let me break it down this way. Think of something that is somewhat complex, that's a task that you do every day. Maybe something like making dinner for your entire family. It may be routine to you by now so that you barely think about it. But think about all the steps that go into making a meal. You have to decide on what you're going to make, find, scrounge around in in your kitchen, or you have to buy all the ingredients and then put them together in such a way that you create an edible and hopefully nutritious meal that doesn't poison your entire family. Transitioning an animal between consciousness and unconsciousness takes an entire system of incredibly complex steps, and making a simple error or miscalculation may lead to dire consequences. How can we, as anesthetists, practice the art of anesthesia while ensuring that we do right by our patients to minimize the impact of human error on patient outcomes? And if an error does occur, how do we protect ourselves from shame and destructive thoughts while simultaneously finding solutions to improve upon the system in which we practice? Our guest, Dr. Lydia Love, a veterinary anesthesiologist from North Carolina State University, is here to help guide us through these important questions through her fierce passion in advocating for safety culture in anesthetic practice. Hi, Dr. Love. Thank you so much for joining us today on the NAVAS podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. Let's just start with a quick introduction. So who are you? What do you do? And describe your level of training. Well, my name is Lydia Love, and I am a clinical anesthesiologist at North Carolina State University College of Veterinary Medicine. I graduated from the University of Tennessee in 2002. I did a rotating small animal internship. I worked for the Humane Society of the United States for four years doing spay and neuter in rural Appalachia in a mash style kind of setup. And that got me really interested in anesthesia, taking care of 30 or 40 or 50 or 60 dogs and cats in a day and getting them through that event safely. So I went back to the University of Tennessee and completed an anesthesia residency. I was board certified in 2010. And then I spent almost a decade in a private referral practice in northern New Jersey. And then I've been at North Carolina for about four years. So I try to ask this to all of our guests. Why did you decide to become an anesthesiologist? What is it about anesthesia that really makes you feel passionate? Well, anesthesia is patient-focused, and that is my major professional driver. I want to improve and really just optimize the experience for our patients when they're under our care. I think that's going to be a very nice 
sidestep into our conversation today. And really why I had you on is because you helped to create the Navas blog that exists on the Navas website. And I think one of the first articles that came up on the blog was about checklists. And I thought your article was really well done and a great introduction to what we're going to talk about today, which is patient safety culture in anesthetic practice. So let's just start with some very quick, how would you define safety culture? And what do you think are its fundamental aspects? There are like detailed definitions of patient safety culture in the literature, but they're kind of wordy. What I like to think about is that patient safety culture is the way people act, behave, and feel on a day-to-day basis as it relates to patient safety. You can kind of think of it as the way we do things around here. And we all have patient safety cultures already. We just may not have really thought about what they look like. We may not have consciously shaped them into positive environments. We have a way we act, think, feel, and behave around patient safety. But I think that we're just starting to realize in veterinary medicine that we need to approach that creation in a really thoughtful manner in order to make it a positive space. That's really interesting. And I guess I never thought about the link between advocating for patient safety linked very closely with kind of the culture of the practice. When I think of patient safety, I think of, well, we're going to implement this policy and that is going to relate into this patient outcome. But what it sounds to me like you're advocating for is more of a culture across the board or the environment that patients are operating in. Yeah, I mean, it has to be kind of forefront of mind in everything we do and at all levels of the organization. And so the fact is that a positive patient safety culture, it's bigger than just anesthesia alone, although I think anesthesiologists and anesthetists are really good drivers of that environment because, you know, anesthesia is not generally a therapeutic thing. It's it's often just a risk that has to be undertaken. And so we, you know, tend to be very patient safety focused to begin with. But the reality is that healthcare itself is dangerous. It presents risk. Humans are imperfect, no matter how hard we try, no matter how smart we are, no matter how well trained we are, things still happen all the time. And so an organization that has a positive patient safety culture is one where that risk is noted, everybody is aware of it, and everyone is empowered to speak up, to talk about things that go wrong, and to come up with systems fixes to hopefully trap error and prevent the same things from happening over and over and over. It's so important because one that hopefully improves the experience for patients but it also improves the healthcare provider experience. It improves our well-being to work in a positive patient safety culture where it is acknowledged that things can go wrong and it's often the system's fault, not that we're terrible people. Yeah. Okay. You said a lot of things in there that I want to break down and talk about a little bit more. <laughs> I, I get real excited. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So let's just start with why are anesthesiologists 
in general, kind of the leaders in addressing patient safety, performing anesthesia in patients on a daily basis, that probably just makes up a very small percentage of like what people are doing in, in daily veterinary practice. And yet anesthesiologists, at least I know for me, when I come into a practice, a lot of times people in the practice are looking to me towards being a leader in helping to address issues specifically related to patient safety. And so what is it about anesthetic practice encourages the creation of a robust safety culture? I think anesthesiologists make great medical directors and great patient safety officers for a reason. And that's because we do something on a day-to-day basis that involves CNS and cardiorespiratory toxins, right? These are the drugs that have the narrowest therapeutic index of any routinely used medication in healthcare practice. And so we're giving toxins, we're presenting extra risk to the patient. It's necessary in order to achieve our goals, whatever the procedural goal is, It's necessary in order to do that in a humane way, but it does present risk. And so we are a group of people who are already focused on patient safety and and have made great strides over the last few decades. But still, I do think anesthesia is one of the main drivers of patient risk and liability in the veterinary healthcare space. Another thing I kind of wanted to touch on is something that you mentioned uh, in your previous answer about sources of medical error. I always think of medical error as something that is iatrogenic, meaning something that we do as practitioners and that it ultimately leads to some kind of patient harm, whether that be just a minor harm or a significant harm that can lead to patient death. And you mentioned that your medical errors can kind of be divided into like a knowledge-based error, meaning like you just didn't know that you did something wrong, but there can be system errors. And so I think most people blame medical errors on lack of knowledge base, like a more active type of error. But there are so many system errors that can occur that can result in a patient safety or a medical error issue. So I'm just wondering if you can think about some examples of some of these system errors so that our listeners can start thinking about them as far as ways to address them in their own practice. Yeah, well, this it's really a social science theory that was put forth by a psychologist named James Reason. So James Reason put forth the Swiss cheese theory of error development. And essentially, there are multiple defense layers that start with the system we work in. So thinking about things like, is there enough staffing? Is there the right equipment? Does the equipment work correctly? Have we been trained appropriately on the equipment? Do we have two drugs that look like each other that are stored next to each other? Do we have policies such as labeling drugs when they're drawn up into syringes? Those are systems things that can either promote or prevent error. And then at the kind of sharp end of the stick, there are human errors. There are knowledge-based errors. There are lapses in judgment. There are things like being rushed or, you know, maybe I had a fight with my partner before I came to work. And so now I'm sort of not emotionally where I might perform the best. There's all these human things that can happen. The thing is, I can't ever be perfect. 
no matter how hard I try, I will still make mistakes. And so in order to prevent mistakes from hitting the patient in these complex and time sensitive systems, we have to use systems changes to track those errors. Because I can potentially perfect the system. I can't perfect people. So I want to move on to what we know about safety culture in veterinary medicine, because I feel like it's pretty well documented and studied in human anesthesia. In fact, there's a whole anesthesia safety foundation that exists on the human side. From what I've read, I know that there are some very strong benefits and some strong knowledge that we have gained from studying human anesthesia. What do we know about veterinary medicine? I guess the first question is, do we know whether or not veterinary practitioners even consider or take seriously safety culture in their practice? Do we have any information on that? We have a little bit. There are a couple of studies, one by Catherine Oxtoby and then one that I helped with at, at North Carolina that are surveys looking at patient safety culture. So what is the culture in this organization or in this section of veterinary medicine at that time period? So Dr. Oxtoby developed the Nottingham Veterinary Patient Safety Culture Survey. And then I adapted it specifically to NCSU. So an academic institution in the U.S. is going to be a little bit different from various practices in the U.K. In our survey at North Carolina State, we mostly had positive responses about how people felt about patient safety culture in that organization. But there were certain themes that are commonly found in human medicine as well. So things like a strong hierarchy actually prevents speaking up. So when people feel like they're going to be judged or looked down upon by somebody who's higher up in the hierarchy, they don't talk about things that might be happening or things that they don't understand why they're happening. And that's a problem for patient safety when people don't feel they can speak up. And then communication breakdown is really common. And we also know that from a study published out of Cornell, where they documented the types of errors that occurred within their hospitals, that communication error is one of the most common that happen. And so we have some information that kind of dances around the edges of patient safety culture within veterinary medicine, but we certainly don't have the degree and amount of literature that, that is available from the past three decades of study in human healthcare. So yeah, when I go into veterinary practices, something I see about the hierarchy issue is that people are also scared of retribution. They feel like their job is on the line sometimes and they don't want to speak up or anger people who might even, you know, be their employer. As far as the communication errors are concerned, do you know what types of communication errors are happening that are more likely to lead to patient harm? Like, do we have any information about the types of errors specifically in communication, or is it just like a hierarchy thing? Are there other types of communication? Yeah, I mean, I think there's all types of communication errors. So like in big institutions, information may not get transferred between services. That can easily happen. In smaller institutions, information might not be communicated between shifts, right? We don't have structured patient handoffs often in veterinary medicine. And then, oh, I forget to tell the next person that we put off giving this drug at this time because of whatever reason, and then that drug never gets given. Or I forget to say that 
there was a little bit of free fluid found in this hit by car patient's abdomen. We mean to recheck it again in a few hours. I don't tell the next shift. It doesn't happen. That gets missed. Then the animal gets sicker. Those types of things, I think all types of communication can be problematic. And to that end, the tools of a positive patient safety culture include checklists, structured patient handoffs, things that we can use to trap error and improve communication amongst healthcare providers. Excellent. So I think this is going to lead into next part, which is really practical steps that people can take to create more robust safety cultures in their practice. So do we have examples that you think that people can start thinking about when they're thinking about improving patient safety in their practice? Yeah, well, I would actually draw it back to what you said a few minutes ago about going into practices and finding that people are scared to speak up. The number one thing you can do as a leader within a practice is to create a sense of psychological safety and an ability for all team members to feel safe speaking up. And that includes things like respectful communication. understanding that patient safety depends on every member of the team doing the right thing at the right time. That includes front desk staff, that includes kennel workers, that includes assistants, it includes technicians, it includes junior veterinarians and administrators. We all have to be able to support a safe, open, respectful environment for communication. So that's number one, I think. Number two is for an organization to realize that things go wrong and we need to talk about them. And so we need to do so both in structured and unstructured ways. So when things go wrong in a non-accusatory, non-shame and blame way, either in a kind of a huddle, like a debrief, informal, kind of what went right, what went wrong, how do we fix that going forward? And then before things go wrong, We need to use things like checklists, like badges that say, I need clarity. Hey, I'm not sure what's going on here. I have a question. Let's stop for a second and talk about this before we rush forward into a mistake. Again, that respectful communication, anybody ought to be able to do that. Using structured patient handoff tools like iPass, which is a mnemonic for all of the things that need to be communicated when handing off a patient. Employing those to hopefully avoid errors. In this talk, we could focus a lot on surgical safety checklists because we're anesthesiologists and this is the patient safety culture tool that really has the most literature to support it. Do you use a surgical safety checklist or an anesthesia safety checklist in your practice, Bonnie? I would say it depends on where I practice because I have been doing this so long that I have a very systematic way that I go about before I induce any animal. And I have a literal system in my head because I've been doing it for so long that I go like, okay, physical exam, blood work, I'm going to make sure we have consent and then I'm going to go through everything. So I personally don't do it every time. However, When I work at very busy institutions, I encourage strongly that the institution instigate a checklist. And the majority of places I go have some formulation of checklists. And the other thing, I mean, I have a lot of opinions on this, which we can get into in a minute, but (laughs) one of them is that I do feel like 
when you have a pre-anesthetic checklist, it needs to be very specific to the individual practice because I have a business where I go into different practices. I do consulting work and every practice has their own type of culture and their own type of specialty. So if I'm going to a cardiology center where they're only doing cardiac procedures, we're going to have a very different checklist than if I'm going into a dental practice and they're just doing dentistry all day. We can use very different checklists to identify the patient errors that are happening in each one of these practices more commonly and make sure we're asking questions before we start. I find like when I started doing this, I would be like, you need to implement this checklist. This would be like the checklist that I had from my academic institution and in private practice, like this is like three pages long. Like We don't have time for this and it doesn't seem relevant. So I find that every practice I go to, I'll create like a skeleton and I'll usually say like, start with this, let's try it and amend it over time. But something I think is an important point is not only should you start doing it, but also make sure that you are engaging with your team to see how you can make it better. I guess I would encourage you and everyone to take that checklist that you have in your head and make it a conversation with your team, whoever your team is that day, because that's going to, again, empower everybody to be part of the process. So one thing that checklists do is make sure you do all the things, right? Make sure you do all the little things in a timely fashion. You haven't forgotten to get consent, you that, you know, things that apply to patient safety. You haven't forgotten to give the antibiotic before incision, et cetera, et cetera. But what they do that's actually a bigger deal is improve communication. Everybody in the room has the same information. You've articulated a peri-anesthetic plan and you're all working toward the same goal. You make a team of people out of the random group of people who happen to be there. So that's really where I think the power of checklists comes in. The next thing I wanted to talk about was the modifications to fit local practice. If you look at the World Health Organization surgical safety checklist, which is the foundational model for all of these, the bottom of it says modifications to local practice are encouraged. And your point that what works in cardiology versus what works in dentistry versus what works in C-sections versus what works in farm animal, very different. And so at, at NCSU, we actually have multiple checklists we use for different situations. You know, at the end of a dental procedure, we need to do a really good oral exam, make sure there's not gauze stuffed in the back of the mouth or um, a whole bunch of fluid or whatever that we need to suction out. And that may not be necessary at the end of a C-section, for example. And then the final thing I heard in your last statement that I think is really important and I'd really like to emphasize is the fact that you cannot just throw a checklist into a situation and not explain it and not get feedback and not get buy-in. That will never work. And that has been shown time and again in both the human and veterinary literature, actually. If you don't have training, engagement, buy-in, and feedback, the, the checklist is just another piece of paper that people don't read. Yeah, I totally agree with that. You know, it has been somewhat of an uphill battle sometimes to get checklists implemented. And I think it's because exactly that, like you're just telling people that this is like another thing they have to do in their day, that they're already stretched thin and that encourages people to discard it or not think of or take it seriously. So I totally, I feel that on a very personal level. I want to talk a little bit more about We've been like skating around the topic by just saying like, oh, checklists. But 
Where do we know checklists actually help? Which part of anesthesia, before anesthesia, during the surgery, after surgery? And then two, like how long should people be dedicating or how many minutes do we think we really need to be dedicating to these checklists at each phase of the checklist? The foundational model, again, is World Health Organization Surgical Safety Checklist. It is a three-part, 19-item checklist that grew out of the Joint Commission's Universal Protocol. So the Joint Commission is the organizational body that accredits hospitals, human hospitals in the United States. You have to be accredited by the Joint Commission. Their Universal Protocol is a pause right before incision to make sure that you have the right patient, the right site, and the right surgery, because those are sentinel events. If you operate the wrong patient, you do the wrong surgery or operate the wrong site. Those are, <laughs> those are never events, essentially. Yeah. So that's been in place for a long time. The World Health Organization, as part of their second global patient safety challenge, investigated the use of a three-part surgical safety checklist. So just prior to induction, just prior to incision, and just prior to everybody running out of the OR, a pause in the workflow should be about maximum a minute, mm-hmm. ideally 45 seconds, 30 to 45 seconds to run through, make sure everybody has the same information, you've done all the little things. If it takes longer than that, it's because you've reached a hard stop. So, oh, we actually haven't given the antibiotics before incision or prior to induction, oh, this patient doesn't have a a identification collar on. I need to make sure this is the right patient. Or I haven't checked the anesthesia machine, whatever it is, hard stop, then it takes longer. But if you've done everything, should take about 45 seconds. So the information we have about that is relatively limited in veterinary medicine. In human medicine, that original study indicated that all complications, including mortality, were reduced by 40%. Wow with the implementation of this surgical safety checklist, both in high and low income countries. And that's awesome because it is not an expensive piece of equipment that veterinarians can't afford. This is a a thing you can do tomorrow. You know, once you talk to your team about it, we can all do this. And so, so that's really cool. What we know in veterinary medicine is a little bit less because We often don't have the money to do those kinds of studies, but it has been shown to reduce surgical site infection, the use of a checklist in veterinary patients, surgical safety checklist. It also reduces complications overall and unplanned return to the OR. So that's the information we do have. Also, people generally feel good about them. So there have been two recent studies that surveys that looked at practitioner awareness and attitudes towards surgical safety checklists, both in the UK and in the US. So the one in the US was just recently published in JAVMA, and the one in the UK was recently published, I think, in Veterinary Record, but they're very similar studies. In both of those, well, it's actually really interesting. In the UK, about 60 to 70% of practitioners were familiar with surgical safety checklists. Most people use them. In the US, only about 20% of the people surveyed knew about them. Wow. So it's really interesting that we're at this point, but I think this is the tipping point. I think enough people are talking about it and I think we're getting there. Of the people who were familiar with them, most people used them most of the time and they felt positively toward them. They felt that they improved communication and improved their workflow. 
do you know off the top of your head? Because I know AHA, they do accrediting. Do you know if in their standards they have the use of checklists? So I actually, it's a great question. I know that they are mentioned in their AHA anesthesia guidelines. I do not know if they are part of the accreditation standards. Of course, it is a voluntary accreditation, right? Yes. Like it's not required. Yeah. I just didn't know if it was a part of their anesthesia recommendations or not. Definitely mentioned in their guidelines. Uncertain if it's part of the standards. So if you are a technician or a veterinarian listening to this podcast, how do you go about making that change in your practice? Where can people find checklists? Maybe there's pre-printed checklists, as you mentioned, through the World Health Organization. But how do we find these checklists? And what are the best ways of getting your team on board to start implementing one of these things tomorrow? Yeah. The second question is really important because a checklist is not going to fix a broken culture. That tool can't do it. And so what you have to do is start with the culture. And culture is both top down and bottom up. So administration, whatever that looks like in your organization, whether it's a single practice owner or a team of, you know, 50 people, administration has to be on board with what a positive patient safety culture looks like. But the attitudes we bring to work matter too. So when I say we, I mean, I'm I'm not in charge of anything, but how I behave in regards to those around me and the creation of of psychological safety, that is important on a day-to-day basis. So one, you have to support that positive patient safety culture, both top down and bottom up. And then two, specifically for some of these tools, I think the World Health Organization Surgical Safety Checklist is a good place to start. And then modifying it pretty dramatically to your practice, the Association of Veterinary Anesthetists, the AVA, which is sort of like the NAVIS European sister organization, we are modeled on their organization. They have veterinary specific checklists that are freely available on their website. You can modify those. And there are various other resources, people have published checklists that they use in proceedings and things like that, that, you know, really just a quick search of the internet can get you started there. Yeah. In the show notes, I'm going to link both the ABA as well as the World Health Organization's surgical checklist. So if you're just looking for a place to start, look in the show notes. So earlier we talked a little bit about issues with communication and people speaking up when they feel like something is wrong. The one thing I oftentimes hear from administrators, and again, I'm not an administrator by any means. I'm not in charge of anything. (laughs) But (laughs) one thing I sometimes hear from administrators is if people are making mistakes in practice, they want to have a way of making sure that that individual is not continuing to make mistakes. So I find a lot of times that administrators are reprimanding people if they make a mistake as a way of like documenting, I don't know, whether or not that person can continue to be employed at that particular place. And so there's like a punishment system. So like if a technician forgets to give a medication than they were supposed to, or they give a wrong dose of a medication, a lot of times administration is going to respond to that with some kind of either a verbal or a written reprimand, again, as a way of documenting employment and things like that, kind of protecting the institution. So how do you balance between creating a robust safety culture in a practice where people can speak up if they do make a medical error versus making sure that the practice can protect itself against employees or like bad actors essentially 
uh, an employment setting? I mean, it's such a great question and it feeds into the idea of a just culture. So in a just culture, people are not shamed and blamed, but they are still responsible for their actions and they have professional responsibility, meaning they have to follow policies, right? They have to do the things that are expected of them, show up on time, be a respectful communicator, not show up to work impaired, things like that that would be problematic in nature. And and the organization has to, as a conscious effort, realize that mistakes can happen, even with the best intent, and then not punish people, but look at the system and how it can be fixed. It It is one thing to do something maliciously or to, again, choose not to follow a policy. And it is another thing to accidentally give the wrong drug when you were not at all trying to do that. And if you punish people for that kind of thing, you will isolate them, you will hurt them emotionally, you will potentially lose a worker, which is um, really uh, potentially problematic, and you will do nothing to raise organizational level outcomes. You will just allow that thing to happen again to someone else and go through the same cycle over and over. Whereas if you support the person who made a mistake appropriately and then fix the system, you can hopefully all votes. Yeah, so what I'm hearing from you is if somebody makes a mistake, trying to get to the root cause of why the mistake happened, create maybe protocols to try to prevent that from happening again. However, maybe if that employee violates that protocol in the future, then that needs to be a different type of discussion at that point. Is that what I'm hearing? Absolutely. Like violations and malicious acts are different than mistakes, right? Right. Okay. I kind of feel the same as you, but I just wanted to hear from your perspective, (laughs) but I think you did a beautiful job kind of addressing that very delicate balance between making sure that the employer is kind of protected from malicious employees. Malicious employees sounds so mean, but- And then uh, making sure people don't feel this like blame culture coming at them in their day-to-day job. Okay. So beyond checklists, are there other types of safety protocols that can be implemented that are very low cost that we know can help really create this robust safety culture? Yeah. I mean, I think one of the first steps is to implement some sort of reporting system, right? Because if you don't know what's happening, then you can't fix it. Yeah. So what we've done at NCSU, what I know they've done at Cornell, what I know is happening at Illinois and and also at Florida Mm -hmm. is a digital centralized safety reporting system. Now it doesn't have to be that fancy, you know, if you're not in a big organization, oh, they also, I know that um, Mars has implemented this both at Banfield and Blue Pearls. I'm not sure about BCA, but so you could just have a Google form or whatever, that people could use to confidentially report either issues or potential issues so that you can, you know, see what are the themes and what do we need to address. I say confidential because anonymous is a little problematic. One, if it's anonymous, it's hard to get more information, hard to follow up with the person if if they haven't provided everything. So there's that. And then also, unfortunately, if it's completely anonymous and your culture is less than perfect, which could be the case, sometimes people will use that as a retaliation tool to report on somebody else. So 
confidential is probably better than anonymous in those situations. And then it probably just needs to go confidentially to one or two people who then decide whether it is appropriate to share with the group of people who would look at the systems and hopefully come up with ideas to improve things. Yeah. When I worked at the University of Florida, we did have a incident reporting system that we took from Shands, which is the human hospital at the University of Florida. And we did exactly what you were saying. But something else that I think is important if you're creating this reporting document is that we would also encourage people to use it to report near misses, meaning like if there was an error and then it was caught and there was no patient harm that occurred as a result, then we still wanted that to be reported because it would show us policies that were working and also would help to highlight like if we instituted a policy and for maybe we had like one incident and then we instituted some kind of policy and then that policy wound up causing more harm or it's very time consuming or something like that, we could identify it and get rid of it. The fact that you are so naturally aware of all the things to do right, I think just highlights the fact that anesthesiologists are great at creating positive patient safety cultures. If you just look at all the things that go wrong, for example, if you only look at the way planes crash, you don't learn how to fly the plane. Yeah. And so looking at harmless hits and near misses does exactly what you said, which is how do things go right? Yeah. And and that's important too. Oh, yeah. I also had a random question about drug labels. So I always strongly encourage practices to implement drug labels. Some practices are very hesitant in doing that because they feel like they have to go buy drug labels, which there are like pre-made drug labels for opioids and for induction agents and things like that. And they're color coded. So like opioids are blue, for example, neuromuscular blocking agents are usually like striped in some way. And the thought is that if they're color coded, there is like this extra layer of cognitive aid whereby if you're like grabbing drugs from a random pile and you know like opioids are blue, you're going to like make sure you grab a blue label. Now, what I find going into practices is they're not super keen on, you know, this other expense, but they want to try to implement something. So I've actually encouraged people to just buy labels from Office Depot, like regular old white labels and write the name of the drug on the label or even print it from a printer system. If they know like they use like five drugs in practice, just print it off of a label sticker. But I have gotten to debates with people about the lack of color coding in the drug label. So if you do that, then all of your drugs are going to be the same white color because they're all white office labels. So do you have any comments on that? Like how important is it for that additional cognitive aid or is just like creating drug labels in any way just like really going to help? Yeah. I mean, I think that labeling medications is basic medication safety that has been in human healthcare for decades. And the fact that we still have to have this conversation is honestly a little bit disappointing, but it's a different ethical and economic environment in veterinary medicine, right? And so I hear you, the practice I went into in New Jersey wasn't labeling anything. I got a lot of pushback about buying the color-coded labels. 
It took a while. We eventually did it. I think the other problem with writing on them and not having, you know, so you don't have the color coding, you don't have that extra cognitive aid. Sometimes people's handwriting is terrible. So I am guilty. My handwriting is awful. I can't read it myself, you know, and then I'm likely to just put the first three letters of the drug. And so now I've got dex and is that dexamethasone? Is it dexmedetomidine? Is it dextrose? Like, you know, so yes, I think that it would be best to have pre-printed color-coded labels. And if economically that is not in the cards, then I think the white labels that you write on are a good first step. Yeah. I actually really agree with you about handwriting because I'm also in the bad handwriting club. And so (laughs) I try to like encourage people, if you're going to just buy the office labels, like just print them on a printer, you know? pretty low cost way of just making sure that you have like some kind of legible label. But yeah, I mean, I try strongly to discourage writing on syringes with Sharpies because I feel like Mm -hmm. think that's like going to be the answer, the like low cost answer. And I find that's also terrible because sometimes the Sharpie is on the plunger. Sometimes it's on the side of the syringe. It gets wet. It smudges. And my least favorite thing in the world when I go into practices is when they pre-draw up flush syringes that they're going to use. And they're all in like a one location, which is excellent, but they all have the word F or something like written on the center. (laughs) And that always bothers me because when you're in the middle of induction, I can't tell you how many times I've picked up like the alfaxalone syringe and thought it was the flush because they're all in three CC syringes, you know? So I still try to encourage practices to put their drug labels, even on saline or flushes or something. Even if you had like a yellow label and you just slap that on and anything that's yellow is a flush. I mean, anything that simple, but yeah, that always, that always makes me crazy. To write it Do you bring your own labels with you? No, but maybe I should. <laughs> <laughs> I, I would have to. I would have to because it's just so easy to do the wrong thing. And that's what we have to do. We have to make it easy to do the right thing and hard to do the wrong thing. Yes. You're giving me all these these like ideas. So I was like, yeah, I don't have my own personal checklist, but like maybe I should. The other thing that personally I think that you can recommend to like improve patient safety um, something simple like I work at so many practices that never pressure check or leak check their anesthesia machines. So many. I feel like your mind is, is, is exploding right now. <laughs> no, I know that. I, I, I mean, I'm aware of the state of veterinary anesthesia. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm aware that there are many of us out there working hard to improve it. Again, it's such a, an area of risk for our patients. And in my experience in practices, it's not the fancy things that need to be done to improve patient outcomes. It's the little things like checking your anesthesia machine before every patient every time. You know, the anesthesia machine introduces a complicated set of risks to the patient. It is a necessary thing, though, that we have to do to deliver inhalant anesthetics. And so using a machine checklist, every patient every time should be basic anesthetic care. But there are no rules in veterinary anesthesia, as you know. Right. So I would say from our conversation If you had to pick like a handful of recommendations that are very simple that people can start doing tomorrow to improve anesthesia safety. And again, I agree with you about the communication with administration, but I feel like that's something that takes some time towards creating a different culture. But if we're just talking about something you could do tomorrow, 
from my conversation with you, I'm hearing we could do implement checklists, pressure check your anesthesia machine, and start using drug labels. Is there anything else that you can think of that people can start doing relatively quickly that will really enhance their safety culture in their practice? Honestly, I think the big thing is just talking about it. Start talking about it. Talk to your colleagues, talk to, you know, people in all levels of the hierarchy, encourage people to speak up and create that sense of psychological safety so that everybody feels like they're a part of the team. Yeah. Maybe if you're listening to this, you can volunteer yourself at your practice as your, your, your hospital's safety culture manager or something. Yeah. It's, it's really the, the most important thing is, is shifting our approach to how we manage something that is inevitable, which is human error. Just curious at NC State, do you guys have like a safety culture or a patient safety culture officer or something like that or safety officer? So we don't have one like you all had at the University of Florida, Mm -hmm. but we have a team of volunteers who review the patient safety reports. And actually what we do is we meet once a week and we switch every about eight weeks. We change the group up so that somebody's whole life isn't taken over. So it's really interesting group of people. It's technicians, it's faculty members, it's administrators, it's librarians, it's anatomists. So it's not just people in the clinic because having outside perspective is amazing. And we meet once a week and just talk about the things that happen and what we can do to do things better going forward. How can we support both the providers and the patients in our organization? Yeah. And, you know, I find that I'm just, just my, my mind is going right now. I'm like, you know, it'd be so cool. It's like if, if you work in like general practice that you guys have like a safety meeting or something like that. Hopefully you're, you're having team meetings in general, maybe even if it's like once a quarter, but even if you dedicate even a small portion of that meeting to like safety culture and coming up with like brainstorming as a team, coming up with ideas of like how you can start implementing some of these things to improve your culture. I mean, I think that would be amazing. Yeah. And I just, I really love your point about brainstorming as a team, because again, all of us, no matter what our job title is, we're all important to patient outcomes. Awesome. Well, Dr. Love, thank you so much for taking out some of your time today to talk to me about this really important issue. And I hope you have a great day. Oh, thank you for having me. I I had fun. If you like what you heard today, I encourage you to check out NAVAS and consider becoming a member. As a member of the North American Veterinary Anesthesia Society, you get tons of benefits, including access to CE events focusing on anesthesia and pain management, blog posts, fireside chats with boarded anesthesiologists, as well as specialty technicians, and just so much more. Visit www.mynavas.org to advance your anesthesia journey today. If you have any questions about this week's episode, or the NAVAS podcast in general, or if you want to suggest topics you would like for us to discuss in future episodes, please reach out to us at education at mynavas.org. We would love to hear from all of you. Also, a huge thank you to our sponsor, DECRA, without whom this podcast would not be possible. Visit their website, www.decra, that is D-E-C-H-R-A, us.com to learn more about their line of veterinary anesthesia products. I want to thank our guest, Dr. Lydia Love, again for this insightful discussion on patient safety culture. 
And a huge thank you to all the gas passers out there who choose to spend their time with me today on the NAVAS podcast. Becoming a skilled anesthetist is a lifelong journey of learning and self-discovery, so I hope you consider listening in the future. Until next time, I'm your host, Dr. Bonnie Gatson. Thank you for listening. I hope you consider tuning in next month for another episode of the NAVAS podcast. Thank you.